Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang. My guest today, Omar Johnson, former global CMO of Beats by Dre, former VP marketing at Apple, former account lead at Nike, and most recently, founder of Opus United, a collective of creatives, strategists, athletes, and musicians powering world-class brands. Most famously as CMO of Beats, Omar helped grow a $20 million company into a $1.6 billion category leader, becoming the number one premium headphone in 21 countries. In 2013, Adweek named Omar a brand genius. 2016, Business Insider named him one of the most innovative CMOs for social media branding efforts, including the Straight Out of Somewhere campaign, which reached over a billion people worldwide. He also led groundbreaking campaigns, including Show Your Color, Power Beats starring LeBron James, and The Pills featuring Chris Rock and Eminem. His use of viral marketing and influencers helped expand Beats into venues such as the Olympics, Super Bowl, World Cup, and NBA Finals. Omar's success as CMO culminated in 2014 when Beats was purchased by Apple for $3 billion. Prior to Beats, Omar was at Nike where he produced memorable TV commercials like Rise starring LeBron James, All Together Now featuring Kobe Bryant, and a personal favorite of mine, The Most Valuable Puppets. He also built the Nike Plus sports music platform, establishing Nike's first ever revenue-generating relationship with record labels. Today, in addition to running Opus United, he is an investor, a keynote speaker, and a marketing coach. In June of this year, with our nation facing a reckoning on race, Omar personally took out a full-page ad in the New York Times titled, My Open Letter to White Corporate America. He is one of the most prolific and rule-defying industry figures of the past two decades. This is Omar Johnson and I talking to ourselves. Omar Johnson, where are you from and what did your parents do? Wow. Okay. So I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Um, grew up there, um, East New York, place called um, Star City. And then I lived back and forth between East New York and Crown Heights. So from the middle of, of Brooklyn, um, after... Um, high school went to Atlanta, so I was right down the street from you. Um, I started off at Morris Brown, and um, ended up going to Georgia State um, after. But that's where I'm from. Um, mom's from Brooklyn, dad's from Colón, Panama, and you've got my mom was a nurse, so my mom was always in sort of medicine. She was a nurse, and my dad um, played football, soccer for a long time. I actually played for the Cosmos. That's how we got to the States from Panama and then um, ended up getting injured in Vietnam and came back and was an administrator, a financial administrator in a lot of hospitals in in Brooklyn and Manhattan and um, Queens. So that's that. Did he overlap in the with the Pele era? Yeah, right before. So he came in right as Pele. He was he was going to the war. It was this weird overlap where he didn't, but like he ended up being involved with the team when Pele was there. So I didn't get to play with him, but definitely got a chance to like interact with him. That was a magic time to be a Cosmo. Yes. And uh, based on the answer you just gave, I'm, I won't be presumptuous in my next question, which is what did 12 year old Omar Johnson want to be when he grew up? Did somebody tell you to ask about that age? That's crazy. I always ask 12. I always ask 12. No, there's, there's a couple of interesting reasons why. I mean, um, I asked that question. One is there's an executive coach that I have or my CEO coach. And he says a lot of the behavior patterns you've had from 12 were kind of the same ones you have now at, you know, the ripe old age of 46. Um, the other reason that's a interesting question is my dad died at 12. 
So it's like that that age was a really interesting year. So um, what I want to be when I was 12 was a question. Tell me yeah. a question. I want to be a pilot. Hmm. All right. Just airplanes, helicopters, commercial. Did you have a, an image no, in your head of a Pan Am of a Pan Am pilot? Big plane, big plane that flew all over the world. Um, from a kid, I wanted to escape where I was from, so being a pilot was a way to do it and um, a way to kind of explore the world. So I've always had a curiosity around what's happening in different places, and the, my my path to figuring it out when I was a kid was be a pilot and fly a plane because then you can go anywhere. Yeah, that was the path of least resistance to a bigger objective. Later, you learned that global CMO, also a great way to see the world. Oh, a much better seats. Uh, you fly <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot better uh, as a CMO than you do as a, a pilot. In your New York Times open letter, which we're gonna discuss, discuss in much greater detail, mm-hmm. you make reference to selling mixtapes at flea markets to pay your way through school. Tell me a little bit about your, your mixtape operation and maybe what did you learn selling mixtapes that might have carried into your corporate life? It's just, look, it's a, it's a reality of, of black life, especially when you come from, um, and it's, I wanna get into like how this happened, but like when you think about, you know, how I was raised, it was like, you always have a side hustle. Right. I never really understood it, right? But my family always told me you had a hustle. You, 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 if you had a job, you had a hustle. If you had a thing full time, you had a hustle. You always had something else. So from when I was in elementary school, I always had a hustle. I remember in high school, I used to go buy sodas at the supermarket because we didn't have a soda machine and I would sell them out of my locker. Now I wasn't, I was obviously breaking the rules, but I always found ways to be resourceful and always have a hustle. So when it came time for college, like I, to be honest with you, I did pretty well in high school and I didn't know that I wanted to, like I knew I wanted to go to college, but I'll be honest with you, like I, I, I didn't really have a plan. Like I didn't have a plan, like here's a college I'm gonna go attend. And when college got to me, I think I decided to go to college in like August um, of my senior year, meaning a month before college started, um, which is crazy now that I think about it, but that that was that was my life. I just, I, I, I took an SAT, I had scores, um, I just, I had interest letters, I had a stack of things, but, I never really closed on college, but you know, decided I wanted to go to college and had to pay my way through school. And to pay my way through school, I was like, well, I gotta find a hustle. And my hustle was selling mixtapes. So I would literally go to, there was a flea market in Atlanta near my house. It's called Greenbrier Flea Market, never forget it. It was uh, on um, near Campbellton Road. It was kind of Southwest Atlanta. And um, I would go to the flea market and I had a friend who was in another flea market and he was selling mixtapes. And he's like, hey, I'm gonna make $1,000 today. At that time in my life, $1,000 felt like a ton of money, like $1,000 today. And he's like, yeah, selling mixtapes. His name is Tobago. So Tobago, if you watch this, shout out to Tobago. Tobago gave me all of his masters and said, hey, I hope you get started. And he gave me his masters and I stayed up for two days copying all of his mixtapes. And I went into a flea market close to where I lived in Southwest Atlanta called Greenbrier. And what was interesting is they had a lot of guys. There was there was some guys selling sort of music from the South. They weren't really set up well. I knew I could beat them. And then there were some other guys, um, DJ Jelly. I'll never forget them. But they had all the hottest Atlanta music. And they had every flea market. They were just 
everywhere, right? They literally ran the Atlanta music scene. And this is like pre-DJ drama and pre-all of the like gangster girls. This is like Atlanta, Atlanta DJs. And these guys, whether it was parties, artists, mix CDs, they had it all. And my thesis was really simple. It's like, I'm gonna sell everything they don't sell. They sold Atlanta, so I sold, I sold Memphis, I sold Detroit, I had every mixtape from New York, I had music from, I had Jam Point from Miami, I had reggae coming in, I had, yeah, dance, I clash tapes from Kingston, Jamaica, like I typically sold everything they didn't. And what's funny is like, look, I call it a hustle, but it was where I first started to learn marketing and positioning and finding white spaces. Again, that's, I use that language now, but like when I was young, it was like white space. And I just tried to find a way to do everything these guys couldn't do. And um, we did pretty well. You have like some old Tony Touch tapes on that shelf behind you that you just Tony socked away. Tony Dog Tom, Clue, doo you name it. Like anything you could imagine, we probably had it, except DJ Jelly. Like that was the rules. It was like, you didn't do DJ Jelly, you didn't do Southern stuff, but every other DJ I tried to have. And um, every weekend we opened up and we made great money. That's how I paid my way through college. And that's how I traveled when I was really young. DJ Jelly was the Bose of the marketplace. So you came in and you're like, look, for all those who don't want Bose, we got this other product. Yeah, of Atlanta, they were the yeah. Bose. Um, so you work, just fast forwarding a little bit here, you work a few different marketing jobs before eventually joining Nike. How might a colleague describe junior associate Omar Johnson when he showed up at Nike? Oh God, God, there's people that can do it really well. Um, I was different. Uh, I think most of the people at Nike came from Nike, um, came from retail, came from sports, came from a team, came from college, came from sports marketing, like most of the people at Nike, but there was this really innovative program that was built to bring in people who weren't necessarily Nike people into Nike. And I was the number three experiment, like guinea pig of this program it was called the marketing development program. It was a leadership development program. And I was, I was stupid. Like I was, I'm one of those people that like, whenever there's rules, I try and break them. Right. So I never forget. Like I went to like my first week, I wore a pair of Pumas to Nike. It's stupid. Like upon. the old guy now was like, that's just dumb. But like, that was me. Wherever there was a rule, I wanted to break it. Right. And I felt like, well, I mean, if they want me to wear Nikes, they need to give me a bunch of Nikes. Stupid. But like, that's how I thought when I was, when I was young. Um, I showed up, I was there. The interesting thing with Nike is, Nike is so deferential to sports. So, you know, in a lot of places, you only see authorities who are, you know, it's a lot of these bigger companies were white. You didn't see a lot of black leadership, right? But at Nike, what was interesting is, although you had white leadership, you had some diverse leadership, you had a lot of international leadership, but then they also had a lot of reverence for black athletes, right? Michael Jordan at the time and LeBron James at the time. So what was interesting, you know, when I got there was, it was one of the first times where I saw an organization that, you know, I don't wanna say it was super diverse, but the things it honored and respected were super diverse. And that was really interesting. That's what sports has always done. It's been really interesting like, to see that happen. But I was young, I was an outsider. Um, my hair was giant, I had big hair. Um, again, everybody wore sweats. I would show up in a suit. Like I just did different shit, right? right. And it, it, it was fine, it was cool, but that was always me trying to find where the edges on an organization were. 
And um, what they would say is, uh, look, I, I knew where culture was. I knew um, where consumer behavior was. And um, I think the word they would use is, they probably use a lot less flattering language, but you know, they, I was definitely an outsider. I was definitely different. And um, it took time for me to establish like sort of respect and establish that I knew what I was doing. A lot of that, my own fault, because I was always sort of protesting the status quo. Right. Well, and specific to the relationship between Nike and Wyden Kennedy, which was well established and legendary before you arrived, you know, you're, you're showing up to Nike, you're trying to get some wins, you're trying to make your mark. How difficult is it to know when to assimilate to the well-established rules of engagement between agency and client versus just sort of challenging the, the process and being that force of, you, from the sounds of it, you were sort of always being that force of disruption, maybe sometimes when it wasn't called for. Yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the, that's the bad thing about disruption, right? People are, it's such a good word now, like in the 2020s, it's a great word and disrupt this market. It wasn't like that in the nineties when I grew up and it wasn't like that in the 2000s. I, it kind of came into style as I grew up, which is hopefully just good timing. Right. But, um, what was interesting with Wyden and Kennedy is their work is, is, is unimpeachable. Like they've done amazing work on behalf of athletes, men, women, black, white, football, like cricket, like, right? So they're established as um, a really amazing sort of company that storytells. I think what was interesting for me was, it's funny that you asked that question about like, black creatives in Atlanta, black creative agencies in Atlanta, I think I had a perspective that probably was one of the only places that I felt like Whitney Kennedy lacked, right? Which was that authentic black point of view from someone um, who understood street culture, who understood music culture, who understood sort of the underbelly and, and lifestyle of a lot of their subject matter. So what was amazing is they gave me pretty unique permission to kind of speak up very early uh, I got used to being the youngest and blackest in the room, right? And I think I've, I've said that throughout my entire career um, because I've learned the language to like bring all of those things from culture into those rooms. But what was interesting with Nike is they gave me that permission, which was amazing and dope, but never pigeonholed me into, oh, that's the expert of black culture. Right. That's the guy who gets it. And I think a lot of that was the fact that, I, you know, the MBA and the fact that I had a degree helped, but I never got put into that silo because that's a very easy silo to fall in. Right. They tend to take a lot of black talent and they become these individual contributors. Right. So you're not put on a CMO path. You're not put on an executive path because they've won. It's good because they value that subject matter expertise. But at the same time, they never look to elevate it. Right. Unless you have those traditional sort of business skills. So um, what was amazing about wine is like they they listened to me uh, and I thought that was really cool. They invited me into the room in a creative process. I also think the, the, the dark side of it is was I was a bit of a mascot. Right. So I could do the athlete pitch. I could. They would sit, you know, there's, it wasn't by coincidence that I ended up in the LeBron pitches and in the Kobe pitches and in the pitches with the biggest and best black athletes um, because in one, they had a black guy in the room and two, I was able to bring a little bit of the cultural sensitivity um, that those campaigns needed. But again, I, I, look, I enjoyed 
working with them and I really stole a lot of tricks on the craft of storytelling. So when you look at what we did, you know, with some of my future career, a lot of those tricks I learned at White and Kennedy. So they were amazing at not only executing work, but having a systematic and intelligent process to get to deep insights, to leverage everything from what they were hearing from athletes to the business, to the business leaders, to outside consumers, to synthesize it into really simple stories. And I stole every chapter of that book as I went or learned, if you will, um, every chapter of that book before I left. Yeah, it's interesting you say disruption is a good word now, not as good a word then. And now the bad word now is status quo, but it's it's a fascinating contradiction at a place like Wyden and a place like Nike that if you can just come and maintain the status quo, it probably means you're doing the best work of yeah. your life. Yeah. So there's some pressure just to maintain a certain level and not screw with the system too much. It's a really interesting balance you bring up. But you also brought up, um, you know, working with athletes. And yeah. as I look at your career, I mean, to work in a prominent marketing role in Nike, obviously is to work with athletes and celebrities. And for some being comfortable around iconic figures like LeBron and Kobe, it just kind of comes naturally. And for a lot of others, it can be a struggle. I mean, not just to earn trust, but just to act normal. And if athletes feel like you're not acting normal, they can have this allergic reaction that can be really detrimental. Um, They can feel that nervous energy. So I wonder for you, was, was relationship building with icons, you know, in your late twenties, a part of the job that came naturally to you, or was it a muscle that you had to build? Look, I think, you know, another part of the black experience in times is learning how to be comfortable when you're uncomfortable. So, um, I was never comfortable around, and to this date, I think, you know, depending on the person, my level of familiarity with them, when it comes to, really amazing and what I would call brilliant talent. Think about some of the names, the Kobe's, LeBron's, the Serena's, um, really brilliant talent. I think it's appropriate to be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm one of those people that turns my discomfort into like what moves me forward. And I use those moments with that talent to learn and listen. And I think what you always, what, what I watch a lot of people who interact with talent and they make the first mistake they make is they're afraid. The second mistake they make is they're trying to convince the talent of, that their idea is better. And I'm kind of like, these guys live this shit. This is what they do every day. Like, I'm always trying to inspire, right? I think I used to watch, hey, we need to get approval. I don't want to get approval from LeBron. I want to inspire LeBron. I want him to say yes. I want him to be like, yo, let's go do that. Not, yes, I approve. Yes, I approve is like a pat on the back, good job. Yo, I want to go do this is like, that's inspiration. So my objective with talent was always, how do I inspire them? And, you know, I think it's something I very early, um, and if you ever watch LeBron interviews, he talks about it, like the whole idea of um, doing your thing. And, you know, it's, it's a big part of how I think he sees the world, but a big part of... I saw myself as I had a thing that I had to do and I had to be the best in the fucking room at it. And as long as I did that, you own that chair, right? And you earn that chair. So for me, it was like, what's the thing that I'm uniquely supposed to bring here in these meetings, making sure I did it. And that was the amazing thing about working around some of this brilliant talent is they're obsessive in their preparation. They're obsessive in 
how they execute their craft. And I think what, what you learn with them, things are either great or they're bad. There's no middle, right? Truly great talent just sees greatness or everything else just is, is bad. And um, when you learn that the world works that way with them, you start to work towards that great yourself, right? So I always looked at those people and I've, you know, I've been lucky in my career. I've had a chance to work with some truly great and brilliant talent from sports, from music, from art, some brilliant executives. And, you know, I always knew kind of what my role was and I was always trying to find ways to inspire them. And I think if you just spend your time in that space, all the, a lot of noise of like being insecure, discomfort, all those things go out the window because you're focused on your craft and really brilliant talent sees that. And what you're trying to do with them is create trust. If they know you know your job and you know you're preparing like they're preparing, you start to build that trust. So for me, it's never been like, you know, I tell people often, like people like know that I know celebrities, but it's like, I'm not usually their friend. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm not usually the friend. Like when I come into a room, I'm respected for what I do. And I know that I'm gonna bring a point of view that inspires them, that takes care of their image, elevates their image, and typically creates some kind of value for them, whether it's brand value or financial value. And that reputation is like, been amazing for me throughout my career, but that's what I've always sought to do. Like, how do I do my job with the best of the best on the planet? Right. Well, as you talk about developing trust, as I was preparing for, for this conversation, I went back and watched uh, the 2010 LeBron spot rise, which, and I loved at the time I hadn't seen it in so long. And as I'm watching it this morning, I'm thinking, you know, this is a very, very strange time in LeBron's career where he's being vilified you know, where he's under tremendous scrutiny for the decision for leaving Cleveland for Miami. And this spot for the first time publicly attempts to take on um, some of this baggage that has been dumped on him, some of it self-inflicted. It starts in, you know, in the, the recreating the scene from the decision. And it's an incredibly vulnerable spot. Um, and I was just watching this going, man, I wonder if this was a tough, I wonder if this was a tough sell. I wonder if they were nervous to bring this to him. You've really got to have a trusting relationship to bring a concept well, like this to an athlete of that magnitude in that moment. Yeah, I think, look, um, what a lot of people don't know is how, you know, people like, we, we see him, we see him on a basketball court and we're like, he's done these amazing things. There's also two other dimensions to the work he does. Like, not many people know this, but he was a huge part of me going to Beats. When Jimmy and Mav and him were talking about this new company, you know, my name came up. And then when I got there, one of the first people to say, yo, what do you want to do with those two people, Mav, Braun? Um, so there's been a lot of people along the way um, that he's put in position. Um, what was interesting about that moment was right after Cleveland happened and Miami happened, um, Maverick Carter, who a lot of people know and, and, and is a huge influence in sort of marketing and the branding of the LeBron brand, and he, was, he had a vision that was super, super clear on what needs to happen next. And that's what everybody who was on the same page with Mav executed, right? And what was amazing was it focused on what LeBron did 
that nobody knew about, which was two things, family and training. And if you look at pretty much all of the work that came out around, you know, that was orchestrated by that crew along the way, um, it all had those two notes. It was family or training, family or training. If you look back all the spots. So when we came up with that spot, it was less of a spot like LeBron, here's a script. It was like, yo, here's a story we're going to tell. And the story was his story. And I think whenever you start with their story and they know you're listening and you are listening and you're bringing the right moments based on what they've told you or what you've overheard from them in the past, again, it's not a, do you approve it? They're like, yo, let's go, let's go make this. So, you know, I remember presenting it and it wasn't a big dramatic, can you sit down, here's the board. It was like, yo, here's what's next. We think this is interesting. And he was like, I love it. And then we made it. In 2010, you leave Nike for Beats. You know, it's one of the, the best ideas are obvious in hindsight, I like to say. It's a move that feels really obvious in hindsight, talking to you in 2020. But at the time, you were leaving the most revered brand in the world for somewhat of a startup, right? And so I just wonder, you know, you, you told a little bit about, you know, maybe Maverick and LeBron teeing that up for you. What, but what, in, what was in your heart and in your mind that motivated you to take that leap of faith to leave Nike for Beats, not really knowing the journey that lay ahead? Um, look, it was, uh, there's obvious courage in it, but at the end of the day, um, that was a testament to the mentors and the people I had around me. And the fact that I had a really amazing and dope support network. I had no clue. I didn't look at Beats financials. I didn't look at the, all the diligence I do now when I make an investment, I didn't do any of those things. It was, it was like a gut call, um, but it was a gut call with people I trusted. Uh, I had immense trust for, I, I, I had been working with Jimmy Iovine two years before when I was at Nike on Nike Plus. So I launched our first ever connected product called Nike Plus um, at retail. That was one of my projects there in this program. And um, I started working with Jimmy Iovine on building a music ecosystem for sports. And I never forget, like, I had this big meeting with Jimmy to present this idea. Um, there's like 40 executives in the room. This is when I'm at Nike, right? And Nike, it was kind of cool to be from Nike. So I was from Nike, I had a Nike crew with me. There's 40 industry people in the room. And I never forget this meeting because I think it's kind of where I got the beach shop, although it was two years before. But I, I said, to, I was like my third slide in, I'm like, hey, we want to create a music partnership where we can sell this music in iTunes. And he says something and he said, what the fuck are you talking about? You expect me? He said, Nike's stock is going this way. Have you heard about Napster and what's happening? Our stock is going this way and you expect me to give you our music? And I never forget that, that meeting because first I was like, who talks to people like this? Like who does that, right? And one, I realized that's what music people, or that's what music people in, in that company did. Um, but I never forget, like in that moment, like I had no words or business strategy or business school, nothing prepared me for that. And what do you do? You go back to Brooklyn. I just looked at him. I was like, yo, are you interested in making incremental money? And he said, what? I said, more money than you make today. He said, yeah. I said, can I finish? He said, yeah. Halfway through deal. He's like, stop the meeting. This is great. Deal gets signed. And that's Jimmy, right? Jimmy always 
Jimmy's a, a, a talent town and really understands talent. Um, and when I met with him and he, and he talked to me about the opportunity, I grew an immense trust for him and his vision. And I was like, look, I don't know where this is going to end, but it, it, the way he sniffs talent, if he thinks I'm talented and he's asking me to come on board, there's something interesting here. And, um, and then also, I mean, look, Portland is a, is a tough place for um, a, a guy like me. So, I mean, look, I, I think there's, that's a whole other interview, but Portland is, you know, it's, it's, it's especially I live downtown Portland. It just wasn't, the, the, the vibe was, was different from where I was used to being from the East coast, being from the South and having those different experiences. It was one of the whitest places I've ever been ever in my career. Um, and then it was, it was gloomy. So I was there for about seven years and another Portland, 10 months of gray gloom, I thought it was gonna kill me. Um, so the LA sunshine, living on the West side, working you know, in Santa Monica was definitely appealing. I always love when people at your level of accomplishment tell me that they make career decisions based on the weather. Sometimes it, it, it's just that, man, it affects you. It's real. In a big way, brother, in a big um, way. You know, my first memory of Beats infiltrating the culture was actually seeing LeBron and seeing other athletes wearing Beats headphones as they arrived at arenas, um, which was really sort of the proliferation of the sports arena as the new red carpet. Uh, what did Beats understand about how to sort of properly weaponize influencers that maybe other brands didn't understand at that time? Ah, look, I mean, I, I can't take credit for this part because the fun part about this, what, when I got to Beats, what Jimmy Iovine was doing is he took the Interscope record label hit making machine, which had started making hit music videos or had been making hit music videos. And he looked at those music videos as marketing property, as media. Right. So what happened before I got there was it was really, really, really focused on music. And music was where you saw a lot of headphones. But we also know how music also influences sport, right? So what he had done by that point is sort of started dominating music where a lot of big music videos um, were getting product placements of, of these headphones. Um, so that, that playbook got there, had been there when I started. Mav said to Jimmy, hey, Braun's going to the Olympics. It would be amazing if he gets off the plane, he has on beats. Will I Am was like, I'm going on CNN. It would be amazing if I wore beats. There's a video of Will I Am on CNN doing an interview with beats, right? And it's um, so that idea of finding ways to hijack big media moments was a seed that was there. And then when I came, I just operationalized it and put it on rocket fuel. With sports, what was interesting was the convergence of this glut for content, right? So typically, every brand was fighting over the 48 minutes of a game or the 90 minutes of a game or a match. Like everyone was fighting over what was on the pitch. Well, headphones didn't belong in the pitch, but headphones were always before and after. So we built that narrative and we're like, yo, athletes are gonna use the headphones. And we, again, back to listening, we knew the, head, the athletes were gonna use the headphones for one of three things if you listen to them. One, to block out noise. Two, for repetition and just allow them train with music. So they use music as something, a tool for repetition. I learned all this stuff at Nike. 
And the last one, a lot of athletes were using headphones and music to transport themselves back to where they were from or home or places of comfort. So if you take those three insights, you're like, yo, which one of those insights have cameras around them? Which one of those, you know, have moments where media is focused on them? And as media started to proliferate beyond the actual game and match to pre-game, post-game, pre-more, as that started to widen, we made sure we trained cameras on the guys that had the headphones. So there was a lot of context, and I think the best strategies are kind of built around context and what's happening in real time, and what was happening from a media perspective, a behavior perspective. That's that's all what created that moment. And you know, to your point, Beat's biggest moments, as much as music was our core, a lot of our biggest moments were sport moments. Yeah. Olympics, pregame, Colin Kaepernick, Richard Sherman, um, Cam Newton. Um, you know, that, those, a lot of our biggest moments were precipitated by sports. Well, and you guys were also a launching pad for artist discovery in a way that no brand had ever done before. I mean, I became um, introduced to Aloe Black through Beats. I became introduced to Ex-Ambassador through Beats. I became introduced to Hozier through Beats. You know, and my presumption on the outside looking in is that's, you know, the expert ear of Jimmy Iovine snapping his fingers and going, yep, that's the track for the LeBron return to Cleveland. Yep, that's the track for the Brazil World Cup. Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as you just have a guy with maybe one of the great ears of the past century, let him pick the music? A lot of, a lot of it was that. Because yeah. I always think about, like, great ideas. Great ideas are never just conceived, like, the barrier to entry for a great idea is typically low. So great ideas are never just conceived. I think great ideas are, are more like an orchestra where you get different notes. Like everybody's doing their role at the highest level. And to your point, Jimmy has been one of the most iconic ears on the planet when it comes to music, right? And that, that created what Interscope was and Interscope's collective empathy when it came to hearing great songs and great music. The Aloe Black track was interesting because the Interscope label, I'm not sure they knew what to do with the Aloe Black track. Um, it wasn't hip hop, it wasn't R&B. And there's really nobody really listens to soul. I mean, sorry, people listen to soul, but there's not like big charts for soul music, right? right. So we literally, that, that track was on the, on the label floor, meaning they didn't know what to do with it. Everybody knew there was something there, but they didn't know what to do with it. And I think when we, you know, and I, that was the, the cadence of Jimmy and I, I would bring him these treatments or I'd bring him an edit and be like, yo, what do you think? And you just see the wheels turning on like, here's the music we do. The one thing that was funny because I was, it was like a secret squirrel plan I had, which was I never wanted to really use hip hop. We lived in hip hop. We had a big black box, big black guy, founder. We had black athletes. So we were always looking. The first commercial, I think we used this, not this closure. We used some artists. We used, we used like, like, Brit, like British music for like our first commercial. I'll never forget it. Um, but when you look at what we did, we always try to find ways to bring new music to the table. And that song, to your point, as much as it feels like, oh my God, that's the perfect song. Like it was Jimmy kind of like in his annals of like, what do we got? that's gonna match the emotion that we're trying to create with this spot. And that's where um, the man came from. And then to your point, Alex the Kid was always, you know, family and whether it was ex-ambassadors or, you know, 
we, we always had these people around us with amazing ears that were contributing. So a lot of times we had, we had ads with like three great songs, right? We, I could have seen one of three options that right. all would have been great, but that was one of the functions of like having a record label woven into our company and sitting in their staff meetings and knowing all of the products they had coming. It's fascinating to hear you say that. Now, as you say it, you're right. I look back at all of my favorite Beats music videos slash content pieces. And I guess you know, it, the name of the company is Beats by Dre. Just the name Dre, instantly you hear a certain oh, type of beat. Yeah, so you, so, you know, I remember the spot where it's him and Kendrick and they're looking for a certain sound. And so there's hip hop in that, but it's a, the story, actually it's the moments between the music that make that spot. But there's real tension when it's Hozier over LeBron instead of, you know, Dre yep. reproducing a beat that sounds like a 1990s Dr. Dre beat for that, for that spot. Yep. Um, so our biggest stuff is not rap. If you look at our biggest spots. Right. Um, which is, I just thought that was a dope texture to have, right? right. Uh, again, it's like it's black tension. CEO, it's, a black founder. We had, we had enough black for 10 corporations. Right. So like we didn't need to do that. And what was dope is that we bought things that were also unexpected. You know what I mean? People, to your point, Hozier or Disclosure or, um, you know, Zed. We did a lot of stuff with Zed or Alex the Kid. Like no one expected that. They expected everything to be Eminem or Dre or, and I think what was most amazing for me was this is where I really truly learned to appreciate Dre and Dre's ear. Because you would also think of founders like, yo, I've got more, I've got music for 10 years in a hard drive somewhere. And Dre was just like, that's dope. That's dope. That's not dope. Like it, it was, yeah. But again, that's the thing when you have really brilliant people, they just, they know when it's right. And um, we use a lot of stuff that I think surprised people, but also helped the talent along the way. Like I think the artists that we use were also like genuinely appreciative. Like, yo, you're taking something that's not known and widespread and you're making it big for us. Um, with the Best Buy campaign or Beats campaign or TV campaign or HP campaign. And they genuinely appreciated us for it. Do you personally have a, a favorite Beats campaign or spot? Wow, it's a great question. Um, no, they're like children. Like, if we had an agency that was like doing all the work, I think, you know, you have the one that you worked on the most, but you know, so much of what the agencies did was act in a supporting fashion. So Jimmy was picking the music, we were picking the music, we were bringing the musical options, we were checking with the labels to see who was out there um, to get the best of the best of the best. Um, so, nah, they're like children, they're all different. You know, I, I think the Olympic stuff was interesting. I think World Cup, World Cup was probably, you know, if you got to kind of name favorites, um, some of that was, amazing not just because of what it was but because of what happened after so um you know i think that's probably one of my favorites there's a lot to choose from let me actually ask a different way i mean i i vaguely recall a spot with dre and there was paintballs is there a spot that you made that was a failure from which you guys learned I, and i don't know if that that might have been a very successful spot is there a spot that was a failure from which you learned like that's we gotta funny. do it we gotta go in a different direction this that's isn't funny. it that's funny um God, you know, for the first, the one you're talking about is the first ever commercial I did. And <laughs> in doing it, I was like, yo, is this going to work? 
I never forget the first person. And this is where it's funny you ask that because it's one of the first meetings where I learned that, you know, when it comes to talent, you don't just toss an agency in front of them, right? So at that point in time, we were working with, with, with um, a small crew. I'm not going to name any names. Yeah. But I remember the creative. And the creative, what was interesting is we were talking about this whole concept of color. Like the whole idea was like the headphones were black and white. We were going to introduce color, right? And I never forget the, the pitch because in the pitch, it was Dr. Dre standing there, stark, bare screen, world of nothingness. You couldn't see anything. And in slow motion, there was paint that was going to splash over his head, right? Now, I, you know, I was still learning how to be a leader. So I kind of like let the agency pitch and they were pitching it. And unfortunately, they did the boards in black and white. So when you take that, you've got a black guy and you show if it's black and white, you can't really show color, you show white. So we're basically asking a black guy to have white stuff that's thick, poorly um, like spilled over his head. That didn't go well. Didn't go well. But again, it's like when, when no one steps back and looks at it from a cultural sensitivity perspective, you get shit like that. And that was, that's literally what got presented. And I was in a meeting and it's like, I just, you know, you kind of get lower in a chair and you're like, oh, this isn't going well. Um, and then, you know, that led to some other thinking that ended up being interesting. As far as what we, what we shouldn't have done. Here's the goodness. I used to always tell my team like, yo, make content, make things you believe in, make things. We always, what we were always doing was taking the people that shape consumer behavior, talent, music, sports, art, fashion, those were always inputs. Most brands put them on the end of the process and want them to prove it. We always put them in the front. And I was like, as long as you keep those talent insights in the front of what we're doing, you're going to typically be in front of where consumers are going because that's the behavior they're going to create. And what was interesting is that I always said, like, let's make great stuff. And I would say, look, if it's, if it's shit, nobody's going to see it anyway, right? What's the worst thing that happens when, I mean, and again, we, if you're not putting them out as ads, we never really paid for ads. Right. We made ads, all of our most popular stuff was on YouTube. We didn't spend a lot of money on media. Best Buy did, Target did, Radio Shack did, HP did. We had a brands around us that would spend money and they used us as their creative department. But for the most part, we didn't spend a lot. So, um, yeah, look, maybe it's selective memory, but I don't remember things that we would, I'm sure we made mistakes along the way. Um, I never remember pulling anything. No, but I love to hear. I love to hear you say the thing about no one will see it anyway. I know as you say that, part of you believes that true to be true, but the other part of you is a CMO of a global brand in your mid thirties who has to figure out how to compartmentalize and not get crushed by the pressure that everything has to you know move the business forward ten percent. Um, and especially because you're setting a certain bar. So after LeBron and Hozier comes out, man, that next thing better be at least as good as the, the the thing that just won every advertising award. So you become almost a victim of your own pressure. Did you did you feel that um, as the as you progressed? It was crazy. I always thought my job. I always say I felt more like a chief revenue officer because Jimmy is a really and Dre. They're really true and Maverick and LeBron. They're really shrewd business people. Okay. So we were always thinking about the business. And then what that means is like, as long as you're focused on the business and the numbers and the consumer and retail and how you drive consumer engagement and subsequent sales, 
you're mostly doing the right thing. But then when you have all those people also opining on taste, right? And again, I think as young marketers, we tend to brain, like, we tend to just kind of screw ourselves because we're thinking about our idea. And I always say our job is always leading that orchestra. How are you pulling together the taste of the most, whoever knows that consumer and knows that vertical the best, how are you pulling those insights together to move your business forward? So, you know, we always thought about it from a perspective of the business and we always had amazing people opining. When it came time to move to Europe, we bought in the best of, of Europe, you know, from a footballer perspective, from people who knew um, British culture. Same thing in France, same thing in Germany, same thing in China. Every country we went to, we never thought we knew better than the people from that country. So back to always starting with the people that shape behavior there, we always started there. So we always had a really good and strong foundation for all of our ideas. So for me, it was always just orchestrating it, right. making sure as much as we were listening, Beats was always there. So our ethos was always there. Our product was always there. And our voice was always there. But again, we were always listening to the people that shape that behavior in that country. And that's how we took the brand to number one in like over 21 countries. It wasn't us. I have no clue what moves a lot of those countries. But we listened and we found a way to listen to those people and bring them into our, our creative. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm looking at it like, here's a guy who's in his mid-30s. He's the CMO of this global brand. Every day, he's in new situations. Every day, he's experiencing challenges that he's never faced before. And I'm wondering like, man, are there days where you specifically remember feeling in over your head or feeling imposter syndrome? But, you know, you guys were set up to- Every day, every day, every day. Well, but it's, before I let you go there, I, I would just say it's, you guys were sort of, it was set up to win from the beginning because if the, the normal, the normal CMO, his fate is decided by his individual taste in a lot of ways. It, of course, your individual taste is part of it, but it's me and Jimmy and Braun and Maverick have made a decision. So we're in it together. If it fails, we fail together. There's a certain comfort in that. But that's my point around when you're young, I watch a lot of young marketers. So you're taught like he won the can award. He did this. She did that. They, so you get this, and, and, and look, I have some of that same thing because they, if you ever listen to one of my keynotes, Dre was like, Omar, what are we doing? And he was talking to me, not what are we, I know what LeBron's doing, I know what Dre's doing, I know whatever, what are you doing and what are you adding to this equation? Um, but I think in those moments, we feel this immense pressure to like come up with something Nine times out of 10, the ideas and the insights are staring you at the, in the face, right? But it, when, as a young leader, I know I felt um, that I had to conjure these big ideas. Over time, I learned my job was really the conductor, be the orchestrator, be the fiduciary, be the person that's bringing all these unique talents together, and that's going to bring about the best expression of this brand. It's, yeah, I have, a, I have ownership of parts of it, and I've got to be very decisive in key steps during the way, but there's this dearth of, of talent, like there's just this, this huge bucket of talent, and if you can string it all together, you can win. So to your point, you say we were destined to win. I mean, the wrong person says, I got the idea and tries to sell everybody on his idea, which, you know, who knows how well that would have went. I always felt my job was pulling it all together and synthesizing like everybody's points of view into one. 
the imposter syndrome, of course I felt it. I think in a cool startup, you know, it was cool. I felt very much a sense of belonging. When you start hitting 60 million revenue, 100 million in revenue, and you start to see your revenue targets move from like 200 million to 600 million to a billion dollars to a billion six, you know, you, I always felt the steps behind me or, or like beats, especially if you think about like at that time where you can go public, you can position for an acquisition. I always felt the footsteps of some white executive from Coca-Cola or Starbucks or I always felt it, but it's made me work harder and made me want to be better at my craft of being a CMO. So I used all that pressure and imposter syndrome and fear and insecurity to make me focus and hone down on my craft. Let's talk about that acquisition. 2014 Beats is acquired by Apple for $3 billion. And you experience what anyone who joins a company and gives up maybe a little bit of upfront salary for some equity hopes to feel. As a kid from East New York who sold mixtapes to pay for college, what can you share about, man, where were you, what you felt, maybe what the air tasted like the day that that deal was finalized? It's never final until it's final, meaning, by the time you hear about the deal, we've been working on it for six months. Sure. Right. And again, back to like the leaders of the company, what was amazing is Jimmy just has his instinct. And just like he told Dre, stay at home that weekend. Six months before he said to me, Omar, something big is coming. I need you to do the best marketing you've ever effing done. I don't need you to think about anything else. I want you to think about the plan you presented to me and the global expansion and the numbers that you presented to me from the, from the, from our financial forecast to what we're going to make revenue wise, I need you to do. And I didn't know that he was priming me for an acquisition. I thought he was just like, we, at that point we were at a billion dollars. I just thought, okay, this is the, how do we get the $2 billion? Right. So I, 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 in my head, I'm like, okay, cool. And I knew he was thinking about some big deals, but he was like, do that, which is also when the World Cup stuff happened. And, he, you know, so, uh, you know, I tried to live up to my part of it, you know, but at the end of the day, like we were working on it for a long time. Right. You, we got news, we talked about it. We all kept doing what we were doing. Deal got close. Um, we had that infamous Tyrese video, which, I mean, it all could have went, it all almost went away. I mean, you know, it's, it's out there and defiant ones. It all almost went away. The deal almost evaporated. Um, so you hear this big number. You start to do the math in your head about what you're going to make. And you're like, this is great. You hit that where it almost goes away. And then obviously, you know what happened. And I think, look, when it happens and when the deal was finally done, you had been through so many ups and downs and so much trauma. You're kind of like, it's not real. Right. And I never forget, like, you know, when I got the check and I put it in the bank, like I, I, I logged in to make sure it was there. <laughs> I, 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 I like refreshed my cash like three times. Then I went back to see if it was there, right? And then I went to the bank and I was like, hey, can I get a bank statement? And it wasn't until I got the bank statement that I knew it was there. So like, again, like back to the kid from Brooklyn, you kind of like, yo, this ain't possible, but you know, we worked really hard and we were incredibly lucky. You know, Jimmy is the first one to say, he's like, yo, we were, in, we, we, we had a point of view and we knew we, we were good at what we did. Um, but 
to have that happen in that time was amazing for us and obviously changed a big part of my life. Um, but it was amazing. Yeah. Shortly after that acquisition, you transitioned to a new role as VP marketing at Apple. And, you know, Beats had a culture all its own that you were instrumental in cultivating and Apple has a culture that's all its own. After experiencing so much success on your own terms, did you find it challenging to adapt to this new company culture that wasn't your own? Yes. I mean, look, I think it's a, our culture was a culture of innovation, moving quickly. We had this thing, we just called it ringing the bell. My team, if anybody watches this will laugh because my mandate was ring the bell every 90 days. What does that mean? Do something big and loud so that Jimmy hears about it and calls you. And I made it a pattern. Every 90 days, there was something big happening, whether it was media or a draft or all stuff. In China, every 90 or 60, I tried every 60, ring the bell. Well, that's not how Apple works, right? You think about the refresh cycle of phones and yeah. refresh cycle of software. That's not necessarily how the company works. It has a much longer trajectory. They ring the bell every 18 months, but when they ring it, it's heard around the world. Wow. It's, not a, it's a sonic boom. It's not a bell, right? It's like, psh. so I think that was, that was challenging for me, I think, especially as a young CMO and not having experience being a CMO multiple places. All I knew was Beats. Beats is what birthed me and Beats is where I was born. So I knew, I still know that very well. Um, how to be an executive in other companies was still pretty elusive. So look, I ended up learning a ton at that company. Um, I think their culture of operations serves them. I mean, there was a big innovative chapter with jobs and there's been a, when you look at the huge growth, that culture of operations and um, flawless execution, you know, serves that company very well, uh, where we were very fast flying innovation. So it was challenging for me, but it was an interesting growth period in my career because I had to learn how to be a different kind of executive. So you learned a lot. Ultimately, what you learned is you need to start your own company. So 2018, you start Opus United. Tell me a little bit about what is Opus United and where it's at two years into its, ex its existence. Yeah, so I look, I learned... Um, I learned that I really loved the thrill of, of killing your own. I really enjoyed what we built the beats. More importantly, you know, you get to a point in your career where you realize like, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be okay. Right. I'm going to be able to create capital and jobs and blah, blah, blah. So I think a lot of executives have that, you know, they, they get to that point where it's like, I'm going to be okay. So when you think I'm gonna be okay and I'm gonna do well in life, it's not necessarily about, you know what your, what your subject matter area is, so that's what we decided for you, right? You know you're gonna do well. The biggest question I think you start to ask yourself, or at least me and I consider it a huge luxury, is who I want to do it with. And when you look at the, the employee base at Apple, it wasn't my people, just that, it's that simple. Um, beats. Um, we were 55% female, we were black, white, Asian, Hispanic, purple hair, every letter you could imagine, right? We, that's what we were and that's why I think we were so explosive. That's how we got from 20 million to 2 billion in revenue in four years. It was that group of people and that collective sort of empathy when it came to building businesses. And that, that's not how Apple was structured, at least with the groups that I was in. 
And um, I chose to go and rebuild what I had at initially at Beats. If you look at my team now, I think what we're about, actually, no, I think we're probably 20 people, um, which is scary because now we're like two Zoom screens. Um, we're 20 people, same composition, roughly 50% male, 50% female. There's leaders of every color, of every gender in every part of our business. Um, you know, they call me Professor Exit sometimes because they're all like mutants that came from different parts of places like Apple and Under Armour and Beats and Nike and um, different agencies, RGAs and Wyatt and Kennedy. So we have this really amazing group of, uh, I think, amazingly superb talent that have come together to do what Opus United does. And when you look at us, you know, some people, it's funny, they call us an agency and it's like, we're not really an agency. Um, I always say if BCG, had, or a client said, if BCG had taste, that would be Opus, right? Opus would be that thing that understands how do you take data and mash it with culture and give me a business answer. So a lot of CEOs and founders and executives call us. Not many marketing people do. We get the call from the big bosses when they want to make real change in their business. And, you know, I think, you know, agencies get known for verticals, like we make ads or we make digital or we make social. Um, we're always able to take business insights and inputs and build really modern strategy, right? We don't list capabilities like TikTok because TikTok didn't, didn't exist when we started or it was just starting when we started. But now we've done some of the most explosive TikTok campaigns. So for us, we're always on what's new and what's next. And like Beats, that methodology, and again, Beats and Nike, of taking insights from talent, whether it's athletes, artists, musicians, designers, and letting that guide your strategy is what Opus has become famous for. You know, I, the other thing I would say about Opus, which is amazing, is like, this thing that we do today has been a bit of a, a holding pattern because what we're doing now is a little bit more focused on how do we really bring a lot more data to our practice of also like, how do we bring data to everything we do with music, art, sports, fashion? How do we merge those two to come up with unique business solutions? So the biggest of what we will do has not has yet to come, although we're doing some, like we have some amazing ads and creative and campaigns we've done along the way. Our biggest chapter is yet to come. You brought up data a couple times there. And then you talked earlier in your career about, you know, you're from Atlanta, you're representing a perspective that sort of didn't exist at Nike. You carry that over um, into Beats, bringing your perspective and talking about building diverse teams, not for a more equitable world, but but as a competitive advantage to more disruptive <laughs> creativity. Um, so tell me the data part. Is the data part about making it easy for clients to say yes? Because as I look at your career, I see a guy who deep down has really is is getting paid for his instincts and his taste yeah that's the not issue. for his not for his data synthesis and instincts and taste aren't scalable that's the issue <laughs> it takes the combination of both right so what what i think i'm pretty good at doing is taking what i call soft intel a lot of that people uh, soft data soft intel that's the taste part but then how do you cross analyze that with hard data Right? That's what I spend all my time doing. That's what my team does. That's scalable. Right? Somebody's taste isn't always necessarily scalable, right? It takes people to go and operationalize that taste. And the way you operationalize that taste 
is you're still taking those soft inputs, but then you're adding hard data to it. The, to, your, to your point, what I think data does for our clients is it gives them trust and confidence. As our nation is, is facing a reckoning with race, this past June, you took out a full page ad in the New York Times titled, An Open Letter to White Corporate America. And we'll get into some of the specific content of that letter. But first, can you just share a little bit about what motivated you to take such an unprecedented step for a private citizen to purchase that ad space and, and make that statement? Look, it's, it's, it's funny because I, now that I think you have the context on Nike or Beats in my background, why wouldn't I, right? So um, it, it was probably more of a destined thing than like an act of intelligence. It was like, I've always made sure my voice was heard. I've always supported people that look like me. And I, I stand on the shoulder of giant, giants, and I also owe it to the people after me to make statements like that. But what that was, was an exercise in really precise and focused B2B marketing. I believe that businesses are going to be the force that helps move this country forward. Why? They're going to have unique permission to do the right thing and have the right thing be profitable. When you look at who sets the trends, when you look at who creates the influence on consumer behavior, it tends to be a lot more brown, tends to be a lot more Hispanic. Businesses know that. They don't always give it the respect it needs. But I think businesses owe it to the people who purchase their products, who create the influence on their products, who create you know, trends in sales to see them, to elevate them, to employ them, to make them wealthy. So this letter to me was, I sat back and I'm like, what can I do? Right. And I realized that wasn't really my question. I knew what I know what I can do and I'm doing a lot of it. It's, I need to make that question. I need to pose that question to white executives who have the power to make change in these corporations. So if I believe corporations can be the institution that drive the most amount of change in this country, what's a very surgical and precise way to speak directly to them? New York Times, Sunday yeah. paper. It seemed like an expression of efficiency after you had to have the same phone call with 15 different executives. And you're like, you know what? I think I should just put this in the New York Times and well, everyone. That was, that was the other part, right? Because I think because I'm in these rooms with a lot of these executives, you know, I've earned it, I've earned, I've earned it. I've earned a pretty trusted position um, with a lot of executives who don't look like me. Um, you know, back to our very first conversation about language. Like, we have real conversations about race. We have real conversations. And I create safe spaces for these executives. So when everything was happening with George Floyd, I got, I got all these calls like, what do I do? And here's the crazy part. A lot of them were they really wanted to fix things. And they were, what they were looking for in the beginning was a quick, cute marketing package they could put out. But as you probe more and more, they realize how much of their business is dependent on what black culture thinks about them. And I watched their positions move from, hey, what's a cute way to kind of do something smart in this moment? And actually the profitable thing for me to do here is to make systemic change, but they didn't know where to start, right? I can read you text, I mean, and I have hundreds of them where it's like, I'm a short Jewish guy from Chicago 
what do I know about what my black employees are feeling? And that's why I wanted that letter to directly address. If I had uh, hundreds of emails and texts asking that same question, I knew there were thousands of executives feeling the same way. Yeah, and the letter is not accusatory or resentful. It's, you know, it's connective, it's forward-looking. It speaks in the language of corporate America, which is the language of, you guys solve problems every day. This is another problem that you can solve if you focus and put KPIs against it. And, you know, Omar, yet the reality is, as I read that letter, like you are a black man who has overcome systemic racism, marginalization, pigeonholing. Given that fact, was it at all difficult to strike the desired tone to meet that moment constructively when maybe as a black executive who's confronted some of those issues, you have the right to be upset? Yeah, I think, look, you learn, you learn in these big corporations, being upset only gets you a small chunk of money. It's being deliberate, it's being insightful and being directive that moves a business forward and moves executives into action. So for me in that moment, I mean, it wasn't, it was about being honest. And I think some of the beginning of the letter starts there, but it was really about how do I outline sort of an executive summary of what I think executives should do. It starts with saying everything, but then it goes into points of execution. But that's anything that I'm passionate about, whether it's a marketing campaign or a consumer or a startup, you start the same way if you're working in the business community. So for me, it was the same kind of letter I would, and I would probably write a deck, but it's the same kind of effort I would make in any professional organization. And that's why I was written that way. But it was, you know, look, I think when I wrote it, there's a part of me before I literally hit send, I was like, shit, is this gonna be bad? Am I gonna be blackballed or, yeah, I had no clue. Right. But um, there was a duty I had to people that came before me and the people, I, the shoulders I stand on. and that next generation of me who needs to know that there's tremendous value and accretion that sits in our community if you give it a shot, right? If you give it a shot, you get to a $20 million company that becomes a $3 billion company in four years if you give a diverse group of people the ball and you empower them to connect with consumers to sell your product. I want executives to feel FOMO when it comes to black, brown, Hispanic talent. And I just focused it on black talent right now because that's what I think um, contemporary times call for. Right. In 2020, there are no longer segregated water fountains, but there are still segregated marketing budgets at the largest brands in the world and they have the general market budget and then they have the multicultural budget, which tends to be code for, you know, who's gonna make the McDonald's ad for the BET awards. Do you have brands that come to Opus, you know, with the intention of, of figuring out how to leverage their multicultural budget, even though I'm guessing that the, you did not build your company, you know, in the hopes of creating quote unquote multicultural work for the same reason that Drake doesn't create an album for white people and black people. It's not the way culture moves, but it's still the way that advertising moves. Yeah. Um, we create profitable work that people right. want to do things and make money to call us. Um, because we understand culture and we understand black culture, um, we tend to, to get that part right but there's a group of world-class thinkers that have been architected to solve big business problems. And I think we just create more pervasive answers because our, our, our ideas are more empathetic culturally. 
Um, you know, as far as like the multicultural budget thing, I think that's part of what we're coaching executives out of, right? Because at the highest level of your work, you're sending a very bad message, right? Because those budgets are what? Smaller, like they're never as big. And we're teaching executives like just simple acts like creating a multicultural budget. You want to see multicultural woven into your entire budget, right? And look, I don't think it's an exercise in segregation. They're actually trying to do the right thing by creating this bucket for something that's not been thought about. However, the way to do it is how do you have, it's very innocent in this letter, how do you have black people in every room? So you don't have to create focus on multicultural on the BET awards. The BET awards should be in your room. The BET awards should be in your budget meeting. It should be in your finance function, in your operations function, in your marketing function. And that's really what that letter was about. How do you have representation of this culture in every room, every key vertical, and not just your cost centers, but also your profit centers, your innovation centers? How are you bringing those black voices into those rooms? And that, you know, once that happens, it'll be when sort of I stop, but that's the objective. And it's not about a campaign or initiative. Look, we get phone calls every day about those things. And I think there's times where we take them and we help. And I think there's times where we're like, yo, you're not doing enough. Or this is bullshit. And we've turned down tons of projects. Um, we turned down a really big client last week. Um, one of the biggest and most media recognized names on the planet called Lots us. Lots of pretzels? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, we, we, it's funny because I, I remember the phone call and you know the team was like, wow, this is big. And as I dissected it and got into the work, I'm like, no, it's not big. And they're not, they're not willing to do the right thing. So let them take the dollars and go find someone to do the work. Because if you're not going to create the kind of change, which is pretty pervasive for us, we're not interested in, pro in those projects. That said, we just got off a call this morning with another really big brand who's doing the right things. And starting with hiring, staffing, investment, vendor base, investment base. Like they're starting with the right conversations, not some cute marketing. Right. It's almost like Blockbuster Video shows up and says, save our business. And you go, your, your problem isn't a marketing problem. We need to start at a systemic level before we can help you message the change that you need to make. That's it's fascinating. I think along the way, you will start to see a collective empathy that will be pretty pervasive and, and, and open up a lot of doors. Um, but I, I am optimistic and I'm bullish. I'm not stopping the intensity of my work. I'm going to continue doing my work. I'm going to continue to build diverse teams. I'm going to continue to call executives out and tell them exactly what I feel and also put my time into helping them solve it. Um, however, I am optimistic and I do believe the country at some point will get it right. I, you can't put a timetable on these things, right? Because we, we have to go so far. But I think the country is capable of it. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm bullish. Okay, so on that hopeful note, I end every episode with the same three questions. Uh, so, Omar, first question, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Oh, God, there's a ton of them. Um, the word influencer. Shit, I used that earlier. I'm sure you have. I use it a couple of times today. I'm fucking tired of it. I think it's, 
I can't even tell you the, the, the why and where it's abused. It's just painfully abused. As a person who believes in the idea of non-traditional sources of influence or non-traditional sources of engagement and eyeballs and behavior shaping, um, the word gets tossed around way too much. And all too often it's like, well, I can't afford a celebrity, so I want to get an influencer, right? It's kind of meant, it's probably become the, 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 the code word for C and D list right. talent, right. <laughs> AKA people, and then people below that with no talent, right? So that's what it really means. And I think no one uses it that way, right? So that's where it, it, it just, it makes my skin crawl when I, when I hear it. And I also think that it's abused a lot. The second question is one that I, I usually pose to agency people. And that question is, what is the most horrifying response you've ever gotten to an idea you presented in a client meeting? Now, you are a client with a reputation for setting a high bar and sometimes being tough on work. So I'm gonna flip it and ask you, what's the most allergic reaction you've ever had to an idea that was presented to you? What was my reaction or what was the, so flip I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe. I can give you both answers. I think the most, yeah. you know, most the worst answer I ever got was that sucks. Yeah. Right. I'm more interested in the worst answer you've ever gave. Like it might've been when white stuff was getting dropped on Dr. Dre's head. Um, well, look, and that mean I couldn't really, I couldn't really do that because I brought them in the room. So again, back to like the trusted guy, I was a trusted guy that brought those guys in the room. So that was more my bad than their bad, right? As it happened, I was like, Shh, but it was my bad for bringing them in the room. I was supposed to vet that and catch that before you even got to Dr. Dre. Um, I, look, I think in the Beats days, you know, there's a, back to like the brilliant people I've worked with, um, shit's either brilliant or great or not. Right. And, you know, I think with, with Jimmy and Dre, like the, the version of that was great or sucks, right? There's, there's no middle, but that's to me greatness, right? Greatness only wants to see greatness. It doesn't do good. It doesn't do good job. It doesn't do, that's okay. It doesn't do, there's opportunities to make this better. It's like, that's great or it sucks. And I'm sure I've used very similar language. So for all the people that I just know that I earned it honestly, because that language is used with me, but I'm sure I've been like, that's whack yeah. or that sucks. Or there's moments in time where I'll watch, I probably did it recently where I'll watch people take something like race or like what's happening in this country and not deal with the, deal with the gravitas that it needs and that's, you could imagine, that's not okay. Right. So, you know, there have been some pretty, you know, um, um, who knows what you want to call it, um, feedback to work like that or allergic, re allergic um, reactions to work like that. But look, I, I'm no better than um, any creative on a bad day and on a good day. I think on a, on a good day, you know, you try and be really positive and get the work where it needs to be on a day, you know, where you're not, you might not be able to see how it gets there and just say it's bad um it's a again, gift that's a gift that's whack doesn't feel great in the moment but it's a gift what you where where you die is is on long maybes where you die is on good job yeah. good job good I, I tell my team never say it don't use it don't say it to me i don't my we're expensive our clients want great they don't want good right. opus to me is a verb you come here to do your best work 
And that's the promise. And if you don't want to do that, go work somewhere else. So, you know, I, I, I truly like took that from those amazing people that I work with. It's either great or it's not existing, but that's also how the world works, right? There's so many things coming at you, so many pieces of creative and ads and digital and social and print. Like there's all these things at you and only the great stuff survives. Great is the bar, great's the floor, not the ceiling. And, you know, I, I just think that's, that's kind of how the world has to work if you want to be truly successful. And that's a lot of what I learned from the best, in the, the best on the planet. The final question is called the one that got away. What was that one idea? It could be from any chapter of your career. It never got made, but you just, it, it was dope and it just lives in your heart. And sometimes you're having a tequila or a cognac and you just, you think about it, man, we should have made that shit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make that one day. Yeah, if you think about um, the electronics category, the electronics category is notoriously male. Like when we got to the category, if you look at sales, the category was $700 million when I got to the category. We grew up to $10 billion. But all along the way, you saw the category go from like 70% purchased and consumed by males. And I know we were huge at moving it down to maybe 60 something percent. At Beats, we built a campaign around women. And I'll never forget it because, you know, even as a leader of the business, like there were, there's a female group of creatives, business directors, producers, and I basically said, no men are gonna be a part of this campaign, only women. They built it, they worked it, they structured it. It was amazing, it was global, it was honest, it was emotional, it was dope. It was stuff that people like you and me could never even conjure because we don't know what it feels like to be a woman. And we wrote it and we made it and it was, I still, I, I know where it is in my computer somewhere. I mean, I, 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 I haven't looked at it in years, but I always wanted to make an amazing electric, electronics campaign around women. And it just, it never got made. And I don't know what it was. I think it was around the time of the transition. It was really edgy. We were already known as edgy and I just, it, it got away and it's something I've always regretted because I think we could have truly grown the category pretty immensely. And uh, we just never, never got a chance to take that shot. I think it would have been explosive for the entire electronics category. We just never got a chance to do it. And that's the one that got away. A good one. Omar, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your candor. Um, and it was great to finally connect with you, even though it's because of you that my professional ceiling is as the second most successful marketer whose name starts with OM. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. Hey, hey, look, I think you can beat me. Look, I think, <laughs> I, I think this whole platform that you built is very similar to how I thought. You find ways to listen to the best. I know you're recording it right now. You're going to take the notes. You're going to go and beat me at something I did. And there's, there's some other great people, David Droga, you know, but that's what it's about, man. I think I learned from some amazing people. You're going to learn from some amazing people. That record's out there to be beat, man. Go beat it and, and be great. And like, wherever I can help you along the way, you let me know. That's great, man. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much to the great Omar Johnson. That's a guy who's been at the top of my guest wish list for a long time, so it feels really good to cross that one off. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, Mr. Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. Thank you to all of you who 
continue to listen and support this podcast, and especially to those of you who listen all the way through to the outro. Those are the real ones. If you are liking the pod, please subscribe, rate it, review it, share it with a friend or colleague, post it on LinkedIn or Twitter. And until we talk again, peace.